You're listening to the Spirit Hunters, a member of Joe Mama's Podcast Network. Find out more about our pod brethren and how to join our now public and free Discord group and support the show at yourdadsass.com and patreon.com slash spirithunterpod. And thank you. Thank you for our sister network, uh, Ligma, Ligma Studios. Thank you very much. Appreciate the support. Patrick, Joe, and Sarah. So last time, while Miram and Netero duked it out with fists and philosophy, Gon tried to rush Pito's game of high-stakes operation. This week, everything's coming up roses. You better get ready. Alright, so we are covering episode 127, Hostility and Determination, or in Japanese... Taki to Ketsui, and it was originally released in Japan on April 30th, 2014. The equivalent manga chapters are 298 through 300, and th- those were released in Japan on March 1st, 2010. I like, I like how we're slowly getting caught up to when the show actually started premiering. Like, slowly but surely, we're getting to the point where you know, it's it's it started the the 2011 started airing, which I think is kind of funny. Oh, so you mean the manga release dates are now catching up to where the 2011 series started? Yeah, yeah, that's it is kind of surreal. Also, this title Teki to Ketsui, I'm thinking like normally they're puns or like you know they sound similar. I'm wondering if this one's a kanji pun, and that's why it doesn't come through in phonetics. If only Megan was here, sadly. <laughs> Sadly, she didn't make the transition to atyourdadsass.com. She's still she's still stuck at Ligma Studio. She'll be over in a bit. <laughs> yeah. But uh but yeah, um so yeah, the summary, the synopsis for this episode. A history of violence is retold, not the movie, just the history of hunter hunter violence. Explain the use of the rose bomb in the universe and their consequences being a disaster for the human race. Wondering if we humans are no better than the ants they are killing. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indigities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to a greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering. So actually, what a, we got a – looks like there's a, a source on that. Uh, what's this? Wow, I can't uh, believe you copied this from a Wikipedia in your own mind. Yeah, let's see. Uh, so this the source is the Unabomber Trial, the Manifesto. Okay. Mm-hmm. Unabomber Manifesto Destiny, yep. Yeah, the pick of Destiny. Thank you, Tenacious D. Uh, anyways, the gang reopens to figure it out. What the heck? Anyway, <laughs> sorry, my brain is broken today. Afterwards, the gang regroups to figure out if they're falling back or continuing their onslaught. And after a very short discussion, they decide to fight on and face the ants head on. With Gon just about ready to fight Pito, traveling to pa- paging for their final fight. Or to help no, it was to help. Uh, help. Uh, I mean, they're probably gonna fight eventually, but they're they're trying to help. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, kite. Yeah, that's it. Kite, for real. And of course, Sire, one of the best deliveries in the entirety of 
Hunter Hunter. Yeah. Pure Shakespeare <laughs> right there. Exactly. Yeah. I've been watching in Japanese again, so I guess I missed uh what Sire sounded like. I definitely got Osama. Dang, we're hunting down Osama on that one? God damn. Yeah. That's wow, we really all right. We'll we'll get more into Osama and Osama like people later in this episode. Yikes, not comped on that one. Anyways, uh anyways, I thought this was a really interesting episode and by interesting i mean it was it was pretty good i mean it's a shows the history of the bomb and sort of uh it's i think it starts to comment on like the the idea that maybe the humans are no better than the ants which i really really like that comparison it's like are we no better than the people that we kill can, can we talk about how this establishes that the hunter hunter universe is post post-apocalyptic because it's not just that one or two bombs went off as did in our history it is that I it is that in 250 places the rose bombed an average of 10 times per country. So like this place has been bombed to shit and I think the average person would have a memory of seeing a nuclear explosion at some point. Yeah, my my thing is how long has it been since they've been bombing it like since the last one went off? That's well, a good besides question. Besides this one. I do wonder that because they mentioned there's been a treaty in place that has been mostly, you know, like uh, actually held to. But like, it does make me wonder just like, hey, how long were people building from the ashes? Is that why there's like so many new glistening cities because not much is left? (laughs) That's a good point. It could be something maybe within the not decade, but the century. So I wouldn't imagine it would be anything like more than two than 100 years ago because it seems like pretty recent history um for that world and it also it's very much parallel to all our world and like the aftermath of world war ii and the cold war so i was like oh wow this is like not very subtle in what the inspirations are but it very much needed <laughs> yeah they're, they're de- i can definitely see where some inspiration came from a little bit especially with some the bombing aspect of it but I overall, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, so just to get more into the specifics of this, um, you know, they talk about 250 regions being having at least 10, like having an average of 10 times uh, explosions on each of them, but only 5,120,000 people were killed. Like, so I guess one thing I want to go back to is I mentioned there not being much left. It does sound like they avoided major cities throughout most of this because they said the treaty came up when it hit a major capital and that's when everyone got serious about it. So I wonder if the implication is that basically border conflicts were having this happen and terrorist strikes on smaller towns. Oh, sorry. I was saying it makes you wonder if it's that one town that the, that the, the phantom troops from maybe they're the oh, meteor city. Yeah. Cause it is, they said pretty much it is a kind of a shithole. So it is a shithole, but I think that they've talked about meteor city in the distant past already being a shithole. So, I mean, it's possible the bomb goes back way further than we think it does like less of the analog to the post-World War II to Cold War era. And it could be more like Adventure Time style where it's just like, oh yeah, there was a nuclear apocalypse like a thousand years ago or something like that. Although I don't have any indication that the tech is advanced enough for there to be that much distance unless people really bomb themselves into the Stone Age. So I'm I'm going to go back to the original estimation of probably this is more similar to a real world timeline versus World War II. So like basically a period of, anywhere between 50 to like 100 years 
Who knows? Tagashi does. Maybe. I don't know. If and when we get to the manga, I'd be very curious to know your guys' thoughts on the ways in which it does and doesn't match with real world history and politics. Can't wait. I'm I'm excited actually to check out the manga and see the major differences or the, the, the what goes on afterwards. Cause I know there's a lot of stuff that I want to see at least and excited for, so for sure. So um you know, I think one thing that's interesting is, uh, is it Knuckle who says, who asks himself, like, did the chairman defeat the king? And then immediately answers himself, it doesn't matter either way. Um, because I think he's using defeat in the sense of, like, in a one-on-one duel. Because I think he knew that regardless of what happened, he either had to kill him in the one-on-one duel or he would just blow himself up. So we've talked a little bit about, like, how much did everyone know going into this and, like, what were they expecting And I think this kind of puts it on the side of like everyone knew or at least maybe everyone but gone or something knew that like Netero had like a nuclear bomb in his in his chest. I don't know. But did they uh, um, did that? uh, Yeah, I'm kind of like because I remember we talked about like people on sort of need to know what sort of what they they like their powers and like what they are going to be doing. So it makes me wonder if if none of them knew and just like a no, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put a bomb. I think so people are like, you know not knowing maybe just tell like a close group of friends or just like the le- the head leaders of it yeah like at minimum uh nov and uh morel uh, yeah nov and morel would know i think at minimum and then right. you kind of just got to guess layers on layers from their onion style yeah like shrek he knew yep. that netero would do whatever it would take to defeat um the king but not the specifics, you know? Because, like, maybe he's not high enough in, to be in the know of, like, of the bomb itself. Because it seems like a pretty high trade secret that I feel like Knuckle as an apprentice wouldn't be privy to. But obviously Morel and Nov would be. He yeah. just got that gut feeling. It does make me wonder. Um, it could also be one of those things where, like... You know, we there's definitely some debate about how intelligent Nov is, because um, I think he is super intelligent on certain things and then not on others. Like on tactics, I think he is, and he's just like lets his emotions get in the way of things. And it wouldn't be unthinkable that he could have just intuited through figuring out strategy, like, oh yeah, dude, probably decided to break the equivalent of like a nuclear treaty uh, because it's that serious. So like, there's maybe the chance that he just figured it out. There's definitely that chance, and I wonder if, uh, to a point that uh, Zeno would probably know, like as his friend, it's like because he, like even though he left, it seemed like he maybe he left because he knew it was going to happen. Oh yeah, actually that's a fair point because I had previously because like before we talked about why did Zeno leave, and part of it had to do with like him just being surprised about the king's behavior towards Komugi, but as the consummate professional he is, it doesn't. It feels like a massive just like out of character move that he would just leave for that reason. So maybe he did leave because of that. That's a good intuition actually. Yeah. Cause I'm, I mean, well, he said that he didn't realize this was going to happen because he knew like, he knew it was like, Oh, he's not going to kill this ant dude. He's like, he's going to nuke that and potentially kill them. Like, cause he didn't know, he didn't know exactly the details of the fight probably. So he's like, Oh man, this is going to, going to be like more than that. And, 
or maybe it's like one of those things that compound itself where it's like he's already in a shitty mood and it's like well something else happens like well that's even worse so it's like he just was like fuck this i see remove myself from the situation and realized that he's probably not going to see his friend again probably yeah that's interesting because yeah if we like roll the tape back and think about like what he knew if he did know that then you're right he's saying goodbye to his friend basically but because of who he is as this like somewhat stoic person i guess he's just like yep just gotta go this is what's up yeah because i mean he's probably not he's probably not unfamiliar with the notion of people he was working with dying i mean it's not like a uh, you have a retirement party when you're in your recession of that nature I think it's slightly different, though, because he mentioned that Netero was an old man when he was born, like when, you know, Zeno was born. So it is slightly different in the sense of like, oh, Netero's immortal in a certain way. But I guess you could also look at it as just like, oh, yeah, it's when like an old person, you know, dies like it's not, you know, unforeseen. Although this was not a natural death, <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of like that analogy with, with with an old person, you know, more like a oh, this old this old person, you know, that like you've always seen like relatively young, and he gets older and older, and it's like he's just been a an ever existing thing in your life, like he's just been there since you were born, and you used to him being there, so it's like not having him there is just kind of like a, it feels weird, like, and maybe that's might what he he might be feeling, so like oh, Netero is just always gonna gonna be there is an ever existing thing in my 80 or 90 years of existing or however i don't know how old xenos is so i think it's derivable from the in series material but i don't remember it i wouldn't be surprised if he's like 70 or something but yeah it's, it's just like one of those things where it's like yeah you just get so used to that and it's like weird not having that so it's it's a weird feeling that that i i wouldn't say because i don't think he needs like a he's emotionally where he needs a comfort person or like a comfort of that nature but it's kind of like a like that comfort that existence that he knew is not he's not going to be there anymore like he can't like meet the guy that's like invulnerable and just like hang out and stuff or you know have tea or whatever yeah especially because they were posited previously as yin and yang so it is interesting to see one of them alive and the other not yeah no it's i mean technically that's a form of yin and yang so i guess was kept that thematic a little I, bit. Yeah, I guess if you move the if you move the idea of the dipole to like one of us is alive, the other is dead. <laughs> <laughs> also, I only tell lies. <laughs> uh, you you uh, pick the you pick the, the the maze to get out of the Yu-Gi-Oh game. Anyways, um, so I think something that we you may kind of mention in your summary, Patrick, just this is the. One of the episodes where I really felt like it really tried to drill into like the audience to question what is worse or who is worse, the ants versus the humans, and the bomb being like one of the big points of seeing like are humans really that have the moral high ground when we're using these weapons to destroy each other versus the ants are following their instincts and just dominating races because they're they got the itch to do so <laughs> so i don't know like what are your what everyone's thoughts on that my first thought is if since we was in this series he'd be like i fucking told you i fucking <laughs> told you it's just that's just what his skeleton corpse is saying in that dimension with the other dude holding him yeah. it's like he's just like called it <laughs> and like, oh, finally oh. rest 
<laughs> yes. But yeah, but yeah, it's but I do like that because I I was thinking about this like I don't know how they're worse ants just like but I was like I mean if you think about it from that perspective of killing fifty was it fifty nine million people or was it five million I can't remember that amount of people and it's like oh, the ants it's probably 5 killed million. yeah even if that the ants probably killed significantly less than than that amount and and at least people wise because I don't think I don't think the combination of each score toe and well, actually, I don't think they've really killed anybody in that uh, in escort the well in the terms of the mass group. I don't think they've really killed anybody in that regards, besides you know the head of securities and stuff like that. So they definitely caught a, they killed a lot of people in NGL before getting the escort toe. Yeah, but I don't think to the point where it's like the the uh, maybe it was in the millions. I don't know. I mean, but comparing it just simply numerically is kind of not. It's a false equivalence, not in the sense of like, oh yeah, that's that's not bad. More like. It's a question of opportunity, the reason they were doing it, and you like moral calculus is not simply numeric. You have to think about it. I mean, if you're utilitarian, you definitely think about it numerically. <laughs> but like even then, the numbers are a lot more complicated than that. I'm all about those numbers, baby. But no, but no. Joking aside, though, I I, I actually th- see where you're going with that. It's like it's like it's like well, they're doing it because they need to feed and survive and evolve, while the other people kill them because weird conflicts or just for to lulls essentially yeah like i'm i today i listened to a pretty long form podcast about the phoenician civilization and carthage and um it's really interesting i'm not going to get into the details but i think carthage and phoenicia are two of the most interesting civilizations that more and more information is coming out about them over time uh, just because of the way where people are challenging historical narratives, etc. The reason I bring it up is the end of the podcast was basically the destruction, the final destruction of Carthage by the Romans, and how it was just a unambiguous genocide. And it definitely reminded me a lot of this and what's going on, and how human history in its long arc, people often try to construct a story about it, about the development of civilization and like the increasing humanity of things, but we sometimes forget that so much of like what our society is built on are these incredible conflicts, incredible sacrifices, incredible death, and much of it seemingly unnecessary. But I think this season is trying to elicit interesting responses to very difficult questions. And for me, part of it is not just like, Hey, are humans good? It's like, Hey, if humans are as bad as ants, how do we go on living with ourselves? And I think that is, for me, the question I like to take out of this. Yeah, and no, I, it's it's definitely an interesting one for sure. And I think that, the, like this whole thing has been like I think this is actually what I was waiting for to discuss is this whole this whole moral this moral ambiguity and you know wh- who is right, who is wrong, sort of things or not even that. Like I don't think there's a sense of right or wrong, in a I way. Think- I think there is a sense of right or wrong, but I think that it's something where we would need to talk about it for a long time, but it is worth exploring. So please do not let what I said get in the way of anyone voicing how they personally feel about it, because I frankly want to talk about it with you guys. And that's a big part of why I like, do this right. show. I think like, think about it this way. I guess not as like to oppose like, yeah, you know, the humans are just as evil, but um not actually, let me, I don't know what that point. These, uh, let's propose this. Like, let's say the Khmer ants existed, but they weren't trying to 
like take over the human race or eating them, but they existed and humans found out about them. And, you know, Khmer ants were just somehow evolving. Do you think humans would feel threatened? Do you think they, the, you know, the different governments would have the Hunter Association come confront the Khmer ants? In my opinion, I think they would because humans innately have this instinct to want to be the top of the food chain and survive and evolve via technology or military power, et cetera. And so, you know, um, I guess what my point is, I think inevitably, like, he, no matter how the Khmer ants are or what they were doing to the humans, I think in a way, like, the humans would have wanted to get rid of the Khmer ants. So I think this, you them using the rogue bomb was going to be inevitable because I don't think it's very hard for humans, in my opinion, to exist with the fact that they're not the only powerful sentient ones. So, Yeah, and especially with the idea of them wanting to turn them into literal cattle, I can see, like, the, <laughs> the, the, the need to to want to survive in that aspect, but yeah, I I do I do like the idea that that we need to be on top of the food chain. We need to be the top dogs. We can't. So it's like, it's like when when we're getting treated like the cattle in the slaughter. It's like yeah, you, sorry guys, you're gonna have to die, and we have to get back on top there. I think there's also some level of in kind of explaining what Hannah said, the otherness otherness that the Khmer ants have, and compared to humans because. Like, for example, why would humans, like, put up with each other, like, literally nuking each other and destroying, like, entire civilizations for so long and then coming up with basically what's, like, a very tentative Cold War? And I think the reason is because it's humans at the heart of it. Like, we're at least we're, whatever violence we're inflicting on is with each other and having that innate understanding from, like, one human to another can at least lead to some compromise, whether it the power struggle, like, goes back and forth between one group to another. There is some level of understanding there. While the Khmer ants, no matter how many human traits that they'll take on, They'll still be ants at the end of the day and having that sense of otherness and un- misunderstanding. Like you could see like no matter how many times Marone tried to just talk um, and just explain his way of seeing things. He like he was using stuff that I felt like if maybe another human tried to propose it to Netero it probably would have gone through. Like, he probably would have thought, like, well, he had, Netter had his doubts and was thinking it, but his resolve to, like, maintain, like, I have to defeat um, my opponent, he probably would have wavered more if it was coming from another human versus a Chimerian. At least that's how I saw it. And, like, that's how I viewed it. So I absolutely agree in, in this with the sense of otherness, and I think that's very much on purpose. Um, I think, though, that this is kind of a metaphor, because for me, it's about the otherness of an entirely foreign civilization, even if it's like a historic human one. Um, Because I think I've I've talked a little bit about this before, but I think that in many ways, the Chimera Ant civilization is supposed to sort of be like 
you know, World War II Japan in many ways, one of which being that they end up getting bombed and their god king becomes powerless or something. Um, but I definitely think the alienness of the Chimera Ants is also supposed to be constructed as an alienness of another society or an alienness of another culture. And um, the question then becomes like how much the gulf, how much of a gulf do you have to happen? Do you have to happen between people for them to be regarded as alien as opposed to like a peer? Because like, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head that like people could have pure internecine wars of like, say, you know, the French and the English or like the French and uh, the Germans, but like not want to wholesale kill the people. But mm. then you throw the Jews in who are not, of you know, not from Europe originally. And they're like, what in said Germans are like, what if we just completely wholesale exterminated them? And um, I think alienness is relative. And this I'm stretching here a little bit could be supported mm. by like the amount of human genetics in the Chimera ants and the fact that they are an amalgam. But I think it's the idea is supposed to be that there is a gradient and that at a certain point it becomes more and more acceptable to posit just the wholesale either enslavement in the Chimera ant on human case or extermination in the human on Chimera ant case. And not I'm not saying Togashi agrees with that, but I'm saying that that is a common phenomena where by parts as someone gets more alien, people are willing to do more and more depraved things to them. Yeah, no, it's... It's definitely a great anal analogy in a way, and I, th I think it, I think it definitely was on purpose that he, he did that way, and I really think it's, it's just really fascinating to me just seeing just that that whole dynamic of, you know, that just them being, and I like, and I, I never really thought of it too much like that, where it's like a, an, an alien people, like just like it's just another reason. I mean, it, they could have even even just been humans. I mean, they're technically just sentient beings, so it's like, like I guess I guess the people view that there's no other way but to kill them, but. I mean, when they don't, I mean, on the other hand, he didn't really give them options. Like, yeah, we're just going to enslave everybody, turn them into cattle and have reserves for humans. So it's like, you can't really debate or, or argue with that. So there's nothing much you can really do at that point. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's hard. I think I've brought up this idea beforehand, but I think for me, one of the um, centers of the moral debate of this saga is clearly the Khmer ants start out monstrous and become more human and the humans start out appearing very kind, or at least more so, and then reveal themselves to be, you know, genocidal, uh, or at least trying to kill, like, the leaders. And I'm not saying humans actually get worse. It might just be a, a case of, like, revealed motivation or just, like, tactical necessity. But my question is, I think, for me so much of the morality of this revolves around the idea of nipping something in the bud. And while that bud as it stands is terrifying and evil and an existential threat to the human race, it has been making exponential gains and gains in its development. Um, in the case of like UP, for instance, like just like in his understanding empathy and morality and the King even going from like, we're just gonna eat all humans to like, Hey, we'll have preserves. And there's the possibility, if given more time, that they could have evolved into something even better than the human race. But they were cut off early. And understandably, in quotes, because just like, hey, people had to make game time decisions and the Camarians were approaching like a critical mass whereby if they got to a larger population, they probably could have just taken over the world. So like they had to make the choice in the moment. But the question, the moral question goes for me 
whether it was okay for humans to be making that choice when they are also flawed and like in large numbers evil creatures well if you think about it though i mean they've always been controlling them in an aspect i mean wasn't wasn't kite's whole task in the beginning to keep control of the ants from evolving or like spreading out so he was he was, sure. he was like from the beginning to do that so it seems like really nothing has changed in that regards where it's like oh control the ants no matter what sort of thing and like sh- like shooting them and like you know mass and con- mass like exterminating them in a way yeah so it doesn't really change change in that aspect so i just think that's kind of interesting not much of change but i mean we can also see that there's an evolution i mean the, the we have ants that are working with them or like the ants that are slowly like you know what screw this i'm out of here sort of like evolving in aspects where it's like you know maybe ruling the world and killing all humans maybe not might not be the right option like maybe we should work with them and it's like that whole thing is like i'm curious what they're gonna i mean i know i uh, like i'm curious what they're gonna do afterwards like because i mean this is gonna end somehow and if it, if they're the ones that are surviving it's like what are they gonna do you know yeah and last thing for for this from from me i guess is we brought up earlier the idea that like hey if there are two tops of the food chain one of them is gonna get eliminated um i think the only way I could see this having not resulted in that is if basically humans and Chimera and simultaneously came into contact with another group of sentient species, <laughs> a la Mass Effect, and it's like, oh, our stupid one-on-one war is really not that important in the grand scheme of things? Oh, okay. Galactic civilization, baby. Yeah, I like to live it this way. That's a good analogy, but I prefer the, the ultimate muscle explanation where two wrestling factions were fighting each other, and then all of a sudden a new enemy comes down from space and wants to wrestle them and body slam the human race. And then they have to go together <laughs> to fight this threat and become friends. Also, I may or may not have been watching Ultimate Muscle again. So, Sarah, it sounds like you were about to say something. Oh, I was just going to say they just need the Reapers to come out of their cycle from like whatever millennia. <laughs> uh, I can't wait till you guys read the manga. God oh. Well, I'm 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 just excited to see how many different colored endings we get at the end of uh, Hunter Hunter for sure. D- just to art. clarify, it's not exactly the Reapers. It's more like there's a third variable problem here, where there is something that influences both the Reapers and what happens in Hunter Hunter pretty directly, but went different directions with it. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm it. It is interesting. I kind of like that idea that that there there could have been that possible like. I mean, but we've that's the, I think that's a big trope too. Like the, but if you think about it, the humans have done that. Like this is the galactic enemy, and it's like, uh, why don't we all brand together and kill this thing? Like even the even the troop that's like, I, I would say a, a neutral evil in a way, banded together to try to kill these ants. You see examples of it in human history where like different warring groups within one country form a national identity to fight like an external colonizer, but you also see it sometimes go the opposite direction. Where two groups who are colonized fight each other to the death with the support of the colonizer, and um, both can happen. And so I think the for me it wouldn't be a three way struggle. It'd have to be a hey, there'd be multiple parties entering the table at the same time for both humans and chimera ants to like want to keep each other alive. But that is far afield at this point. <laughs> Back to the episode. So gone just verbally saying like, yep. You delay again. I'm going to fucking murder this child who is older than him, I think, but I'm going to murder her. Oh my God. I have a lot of opinions. I think 
I think for me, I think it really shows, in a sense, Gon's selfishness. Not in the sense of, like, he's an inherently selfish guy, but I think in a sense of where his priorities takes over any sense of, like, what he would consider a a moral qualm, like killing someone. And, like, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but he was... He uses Kamugi as a hostage, and it really, like, shakes Knuckle, especially to his core. He's like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> yeah, he's just like, wait, what? what? And so, um, and, like, near the, I'm skipping forward because I'm kind of touch everything. Like, at the very end, like, there's a slight flashback, like, because Ikago's like, oh, Kilo, are you sure you don't want to go with Gon? And then... There's a flashback of that you think Ikago and narrator saying like, like Gon basically was dismissive towards Kiloa, saying like I got it, I, like you trusted me and like blah 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 like, and all this stuff. And I think it kind of shows how narrow-minded Gon has really become, and that you know, um, in a way, like we got it. You know, Kite, his mentor, was killed. And he really wants to avenge him, or he doesn't. He he doesn't know what happened with Kite. He wants to help Kite, but at the same time, it's sacrifice. He doesn't acknowledge like all the people who are helping him, and he is kind of basically de in a sense like dehumanizing like Kamugi, who he just now sees as like a little not a pawn, but just as another. How ironic. Yeah, it was kind of like a pawn <laughs> in his plan to basically get um, Kito to revive or fix Kite and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's sad. My, like, my sunny, sunshine, <laughs> shonen boy is now <laughs> uh, edgelord. <laughs> like, so, anyways. But it's it's very it was crazy watching it for sure. Yeah, no, it definitely intense. Um, so something else that comes, so someone else who's surprised by this is is Pito, frankly. Um, and I think one quote that stuck with me is after seeing how sharp Gon's senses are, Pito's instincts w- were to obey. And on seeing that, I'm just so like one. This is really interesting because I think this says something about the structure of the Chimera Ant mind. And just like the fact that Pito and the Royal Guards are basically programmed to obey the king. But this is gone exhibiting kingly behavior in big quotes. <laughs> but also the way in which this kind of struck me as Pito being like, Daddy, I'm sorry. I mean, Daddy, I'm sorry. I mean, it's it's, it's like hashtag big, big king energy. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it is interesting. It's interesting. But yeah, I I wonder how much of the if, if it was a bluff. Or like a bluff that he's really going to kill Kamogi. He's oh. going to fucking kill Kamogi. Damn. All right. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of funny how he's got, he's, it's, it's like, it, it's like a, it's, it's like the, the meme. It's, it's like, I'll get her by, I'll get her home by nine by, by your, your, uh, your daughter calls me daddy too. Sort of vibes from season one to now. <laughs> you know, that's, I, you should do that edit. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I think there was something like that, but it wasn't like that. It was like it was like a it's like gone went from oh hey I'm gonna be your best friend ever and no it's like it's like killing people is bad to I'm a killer if you don't hurry up. It was the oh it was with the um 
the bomber thing where he gets angry about the bomber killing all those people. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I'm a killer. It's like, dang, gone. What happened? Yeah. I think one of my favorite things from this episode, just because it's, it seems so ironic, but it actually makes sense when you figure out in Gon's like, logic. Oh, for is sure. how Gon, he knows that Pito is stalling intentionally with healing Kamugi. That's why he calls Pito out like, you're pretty much done. Like, you could get this done sooner than you're saying. And Pito's like, whoa, how the hell did he know? And then when Knuckle and... um. Kilua show up he has the balls to say oh yeah I trust Pito yeah you trust I trust you so you gotta trust me because I trust you damn so. he's, uh, he's really Gurren Lagan this <laughs> shit right now <laughs> exactly it's big Kamina energy I believe in the Pito that believes in me what are you saying like he's gonna get in a giant mech robot and, and ride it suspiciously sexually and be half naked for no reason yeah I guess why not um, also, I, I I basically feel that Gon trusts Pito as far as Gon can throw Pito, but Gon can throw. So. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm pretty sure you throw Pito damn far. Yeah, I, Gon can throw, so that's I think that's what's up. I feel like it's more like Gon intuitively knows how Pito is like what their mental like what their mind state is how like the stress levels that they're going through and just knows like well pito can't really risk it so i know that i'm calling the shots here so what i say goes and pito's not going to question it for sure um yeah so do you guys have anything more to say about this situation or do you guys want to move on to the towering inferno <laughs> Go to the next one. Um, what did this go inferno? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> uh, this one was. I I don't know if I felt sad. <laughs> like I kind of I felt pity for them because you know, um, for Yuffie and Shia Poop because you know, like it it goes to show what their existence and their made of motivation is really about it's for the king and knowing that their entire existence the reason why they're alive and the, why they fight is burned to a crisp is like actually like kind of sad it's pretty sad and like even though especially I hate Shia Poop, but I felt a little bad for him, not gonna lie, when his like all his little Shia Poops were crying and were like, Sion and like whatnot. Oh <laughs> I felt like I it had the opposite effect on me. I Loki found it hilarious like, just because I just can't take the little mini Shia Poop seriously. But I'm also just, uh, I'm just like bitch eating crackers level with Shia Poof. So anything I find he does is funny, <laughs> especially when he's in pain or stress. Well, at least Yuppie. I mean, the way that he's portrayed, he like truly seems pathetic. Oh, and yeah. Just, like, absolutely Yuppie dejected. I felt for. Yeah, the sadness <laughs> is palpable. I like how it went from, it went from, you know what? Maybe these humans are pretty good. I really like them to, well, we're going to kill them all. Just kill them all. Kind of like that one angry, like the, I don't know if you ever watched like, uh, listen, man, I, I'm surprised. If you ever watch like old 9-11 footage, you'd see people react to, oh, we're going to kill them all. We're going to kill all those fuckers. Or, like people around that time are like, yeah, yeah. we're going to bomb them to death and sort of I stuff like that. that. Yeah. 
Wow, that's actually a fairly good... I mean, he was writing this in the shadow of 9-11 and the War on Terror, so that's not... I mean, and this was obviously years later now, but, like, this arc was conceived in that, so... You know what? Maybe not the worst uh, comparison. Yeah, just that, that idea that that emotional drain of something tra- you love that's tragedy taken away, and it's like, it's like you go from reasonable to oh, let's kill kill them all and sort of, and let God sort them out, sort of things. Which I think was was kind of an interesting. It was an interesting humanity thing, and I, and it has to be an analogy. There's no way that's like not meant to be like some sort of thing. Yeah, for sure. Just the idea that the development of like individuation and like higher self-actualization is just completely ripped apart by like trauma and tragedy. Exactly, exactly. But all, all in all, though, I could, I guess, I could, uh, I should wish uh, uh, Miriam a, a very, uh, very well, wish him very well. All right. <laughs> very well done. Sorry. Wow. Okay. I was. It took me a second. I was like, "What are you saying right now?" Yeah, very well done. Oh, so I see in your notes you have the phrase "killing is badong." Um, I wanted to say earlier when you were talking about the difference in you know Gon's feelings before and after. I think at first he's like "killing is badong," and in the second frame he's like, "I do bad things to good people all the time." Pretty, pretty much, pretty much. He just killing all the French aliens. Yeah. Well, you know, the French aliens, if they had shown up and offered a, a spot on the Galactic Consul- Council, I don't know how they would have reacted. Yeah, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll only have to see maybe some guy, some guy named Betty. But anyways, I, I just think it's – but joking aside, I just think it's really interesting that that that, that uh, de-evolution de- in a way of like all those gains he had in the last – I guess it wasn't that long. It's only been a couple hours, like maybe not even. Like, I think yeah. that, that legit was like maybe three minutes ago. I'm going to put it out there. When Ikalgo comes out of the rubble, he says something to the effect of like, wow, I can't believe they did all this in 30 minutes. And I wanted to just hit a fucking stopwatch and be like, okay, we know the time now, 30 minutes. It's been 30 minutes since the the deployment happened. So yeah, it's he, he experienced incredible character growth in the space of like a single episode of television. Literally just an episode of Hunt, of a Hunter Hunter with commercials, of course. Yeah. So yeah, it's just interesting that this all those gains out the window, but it is interesting to see the reactions and you can kind of, I kind of, I, I, I think I'm in the middle where I'm like, I'm team Sarah. Where it's like, I'm just eating crackers. It's like, yeah, fuck y'all. And then I'm with the Hannah where it's like, like I, I can kind of feel pity for them. Cause it's sort of like, you know, they're, their leader in a way. And I feel they're that God they're God. Yeah. Sorry. They're God. I mean, if you think about some leaders or feel like they're they have that that chrism to their their God to their followers in a way, but I mean, it, it literally is God, I guess. Have you guys you guys watched Justice League back in the day, right? Hell yeah. Do you remember the episode where Superman goes to Apocalypse and beats the shit out of uh, Darkseid, and then like he throws him off the edge of like his castle, and then like the peasants who basically Superman's like, how about you do an uprising? They're like. Oh, sire, and help up, you know, Darkseid. And I think Darkseid's like, I am many things, Kalel, but on this planet, I am God. And like, that's all I can think of right now. Yeah, no, I mean, it def- I definitely could see, see that. It's like a almost a level above that, like leader almost, where it's like, you know, they're they're following somebody that that they've, I guess, quote unquote, taken care of in their eyes, of course. So it's like, it's like a yeah, they'll do anything for them. Because of the way that I mean, obviously, if they went a different environment, they're like, "Oh, we're getting treated like shit," or like, "Oh, we're pretty much expendable meat shields." It's like, 
But to them, it's like, yeah, this is all I've lived for. I mean, that's all they live for. They were born to it, do it's that biologically job. biologically ingrained in this case, yeah. Yes, I mean, I mean, they really got nothing much to do after this. So it's like, it's like, what what do they have left after the king's dead? You know? Yeah. Really, but but yeah, and it's it's just really interesting, and I really think that this is an interesting part for me for sure. Very middle middling feelings. You mean conflicted? That's what I meant. Sorry, my brain okay. did the thing again. All right, so one of the biggest ones things in the manga is that in the show. It looks like it's like a, just a small little bonfire, like a, a magma pit. Well, in the anime, it's like a, or like in the manga, it's like a giant fireball, a giant like, like maybe like a like a fit thirty or forty foot like bonfire that's shooting up into the air with smoke. I feel it's way bigger than that because I feel they're a couple hundred feet from it. So the the listeners can't see the image we're looking at, but. They look, if they were standing next to it, it would be like 40 feet across. But they're like a couple hundred feet away, so I'm guessing this is like half a mile. Yes, it's it's a very huge fire. So they they kind of, I think they kind of undersold it in, in, in the anime, or maybe they just made it so it's reasonably an- animationable, anim- animatable or something like that. <laughs> yep. That That's the technical term, I lunchable, think. Lunchable, that's, that's the word. It, the lunchable. I, th- I think Hannah can confirm that for us. That's the proper she, terminology. She's nodding, everyone. Listener, she's nodding. Yep, there we go. We good. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just think it was... Uh, uh, what's this? Uh, there's another... There's another uh, There's another one. Faced with overwhelming malice towards their king, they turn completely into ants. Yeah, I, I included some quotes from the episode that I thought... Well, some from quotes from the manga that I thought were really good and were slightly different from the lines in the anime. That actually is really good. I actually like that one. I don't know how I missed that one. Uh, I mean, we are also reading different versions, even though they're both official visual. Yeah, officially uh, viz. released. Yeah, both uh, official viz. My, mine's by Obama, though, so there might be some <laughs> some presidential changes. Yeah. Oh, that's what that's what Poof and, and uh, you know Yuppie were yelling. They were yelling Obama. Exactly. Exactly. They were very disappointed in the fact that he had to step down after 2012. Yeah, I remember the episodes where Poof is having his uh, Gollum slash Smeagol-like flashbacks and just talking about how hope and change didn't happen. But continue. Exactly. Oh, wait, did I say 2012? I meant 2016, my bad. All right. My my brain is doing a thing tonight, so. Uh, so anyways, uh, they actually switched up. Uh, again, they switched up the parts where they did the part where the ants discover the king first before the before the part where, they all, where the gang meets up again to... Uh, beat up Pito, I guess, or, or support gone to beat up Pito. Not only do they show that, they also showed their solution to it ahead of time, which we will not get into in this episode. Re- oh yeah, I forgot right about now. that. Yes, yeah, so they sh- they showed the solution for the king being dead. Uh, probably some some black magic, some pentagrams on the ground, sacrifices. Yeah, they actually, uh, you know. <laughs> They make a transmutation circle and just find the constituent ingredients, and yeah, they go from there. That's fair. That's fair too. Uh, I mean, good thing there's no blonde, boring characters though, so that's always a good thing. Yeah, we're actually going with the O three rules, so they bring back another guy who kind of looks like Merum, but just acts like a normal German dude. Uh, that's that's good enough for me. I'll, I I I will accept this. The O three version of Hunter Hunter is my favorite. Man, if there was a third version of Hunter Hunter that I had to watch, I would have lost my fucking mind. 
it's 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 even it's even worse than the, than the first one but yeah uh but yeah the, the i just thought that was kind of interesting and then the quote yopi's howl foretold nothing good i did like that one that actually was a pretty good line that, that like when he sees the body it's like i think they pretty much said that in the anime though right they said something like it. I just like this specific phrasing. So this one isn't a difference in information. It's just like a oh, this feels poetic to me. Yeah. So and then um, so the next the next frame. This is going to be spoilerish. So I'm not going to say directly. But uh, the king's charge cor- charge corpse is kind of reminds me of another character that uh, gets pretty prettily badly beaten and like destroyed later on in the anime. Uh, Joe probably knows what I'm talking about, but like, I think it's interesting how it, it has that same facial expression, that same like derelict thing, and it makes me wonder if if Tagashi was using something like uh, some like gore thing to, or like some body, like dead body, like mannequin to show like yeah, what a I dead wonder, corpse would look like. I wonder if this is because you've seen those footage from like wars where like they definitely just showed swollen and beaten like dead bodies. I wonder if that's what they're going for, because this kind of reminds me of pictures I've seen of dead prisoners of war. Yeah, or, or at least near death. Like I've definitely seen some, like like some of the inter- like internment camp video. Which, by the way, spoilers: don't watch unless you're in a good mood, because that will literally ruin the rest of your day and week. Or like at it least did mine. Prepared. Like I won't even say good. I'll just say prepared. Yeah, that's 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 fair. I, I do think. It is important to watch though, so I'm not gonna say don't watch it if you don't want to. But it, I mean, you don't have to watch. But anyways, the point is it kind of looked like that. So I wonder if Tagashi's using sort of the same references in terms of dead or like pretty much close to death bodies. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting. At the, uh, I'll bring it up definitely again once we get to the part in the manga. So you'll definitely see, and then uh, for some reason this this. This image of uh, Akago, like with the, the difference of shading, and that different tone, kind of it for some reason it gives me like a weird vibe. Like it looks like a a gorilla's vibe I, sort of thing. I can see it. I I can see it. I can definitely hear something in the background, like a harmonica, and then someone going. Tomorrow comes today. God, I love I love the the first the first gen of gorillas. Same. The first sound was so good. God, vibes were there. But yeah, I, I just thought it was kind of funny, just the the way that it was, and it it's definitely drawing. Because I don't think I've ever seen him do something like this. But I mean, it works. Yeah, we we need to read you and I need to read Yu Hakusho at some point because Sarah and Hannah obviously have. But I'd be curious to see style stuff that we didn't pick up on from having only seen the anime. That's fair. That's fair. So yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting photo, and then of course the last one being uh being the creepy pasta uh. Creepy pasta pito look. We're just. <laughs> it looks like. Did you guys ever like get like a, a like an anime drawing? And you just use the uh, eraser tool in Photoshop, and just erased it or whited out the eyes. It kind of looks like that. I can't say I have. I can't say I have. I mean, once you use Photoshop enough, you get bored one day, and you just like start making people look really soulless in anime. I mean, it's it's just a thing you do. It's. Hannah, uh, unless... is this true? Is this a thing you've done? Um, where I made. Everyone looks soulless. Yeah, we just remove people's irises, well, I guess. My art style generally doesn't have irises. It's just like a a circle with like an eye. I've been changing my art style a bit though. So I would guess you would say my art has always been soulless, just like me deep down. Wow. So, <laughs> are you yeah. okay? 
I'm fine. <laughs> Do you need some support? We'll give you it, some. Give you all. Kind of reminds me of um, you know, like in gorillas and noodle. I was and thinking this for the long time. She always had bangs, and then the one, the I forgot which album, but the album where you discover that she has eyes. It's when I don't know what plot thing happened. I'm not really familiar with her lore, but she has like the same thing that 2D does, and they're all white. That's what we should have done for. That's what we should have done for April Fools this year was Gorilla's lore. <laughs> I would need to do like a deep dive. I know there's a very interesting plot that happens. I I would have done <laughs> I would have done historical research about the <laughs> about the early Phoenicians discovering the original like gorillas discovering album? and naming no discovering and naming actual gorillas. And then I like, <laughs> no, for real, that's what happens. We will name them 2D and Noodle. Okay, no, what's hilarious is when the Phoenicians discovered gorillas. They're just like, oh, these are people, but they're really hairy and they're fucking pissed and they killed a couple of our dudes. <laughs> oh, we ran. Man. They're like, don't mess with the gorilla tribe. And then it's just like, you mean gorillas? You just met gorillas. <laughs> oh my God, that'd be funny. Just like, oh man. But but yeah, um, I think that was during Humans. I don't remember, because I, I, I know she, you know, was it Plastic? It might've been Plastic Beach. It's been, it's been a while, but uh Anyways, I still think the weirdest lore is that Murdoch is apparently related to the the, the gang green boys from Powerpuff Girls. What? <laughs> is this real? I'm not joking. I'm. Fuck they literally you. have. No, I'm not joking. They literally have an art st- a, a art thing the, where the art appara- style looks very similar. I always thought that growing up, but there's no fucking way this is canonical. It literally, they literally. I think it's either Murdoch was replaced by one of them, or he's part of that. Uh. Yeah. So or, or was this see. like a short on Cartoon Network late at night? Because that I no. This believe. was this was a couple years ago. This was like in 2013. God damn it! Apparently, it's because uh, yeah, it's I think it's only a theory, but there has been like official ass art. Oh no, eight no, they do have it. Ace, Ace from I. Oh my god, they actually have it in the Wikipedia for it. Oh my god. Oh, so Ace D. Coopler is a character from Cartoon Network's 1980 Powerpuff Girls. He's leader of the Gangrene Game. He is the basis for Gorilla's sixth studio album, The Now Now, and serves as a temporary place of basis while the Banjul basis Murnock Nichols was imprisoned. So yeah, no, technically, yes, the, the gang the leader of the gang Korean gang was the basis on the Now Now album. God damn it. Okay. That is actually a hundred percent canon. Okay, god damn it. Well, okay, I, I believe you now. Anyways, um I'll say the last two Mongo notes because I, I added them. But um Unlike in the anime where it's implied, Kula like says straight up here that Gon's decision to fight Pito was one made with the plan, like was the one with the highest chance of victory, and that's why they decide to split up. Which I think is an interesting detail because they basically get into like, oh yeah, if I'm taken hostage, this could turn things real bad. Um, and then last thing, uh, the fake out of everyone kind of walking their own separate ways that happens in the anime does not happen in the manga. Like, before being revealed that they're not walking separate ways, they're all walking the same direction, which is just like a, what a weird shot, guys. It's like, it's like, it's like I could have sworn I was walking home. Why am I walking towards this direction? Yeah. Um, are there any deaths to rate? Or just, uh, I guess, like, all of Meruem's, like, uh, external skin? Yeah. I'm, I mean, do we have a confirmation that Meruem is dead? No, I, I just said his skin. I have a skin, uh, but I was going to say, uh, do you guys have any moisturizers you guys would uh, recommend? I've been looking for sunscreen <laughs> recommendations recently, and I think Marilyn could have really used some here. I really don't really know anything for his foreskin. 
Wow. Very, yeah. <laughs> All right. Speaking of which, did I tell you guys about the weird... <laughs> What the, the weird fuck? Naoko Takauchi thing with like with Togashi about foreskin that I recently learned about. Oh yeah, the the thing where it's oh yeah, I think you she has a with... comic just talking about his foreskin at some point, and I'm like, what the fuck is this couple? Oh um, my god. Yeah, I need to find it because I think devoid of context, this sounds even crazier than it is because it's pretty weird. But it's her just being like, yeah, before, you know, dating him, I didn't know about foreskin. And I'm just like, did I need this information? Dang. So that means that she must be the first person that was like really intimate with him, I guess. Or no, she uh, he was intimate. Yeah, the reverse. Sorry. I don't know. Maybe everyone she had had sex with before that point was circumcised or I don't I don't know. There's any number or, or there's any number of things that could happen here. It is kind of sweet. You you think you think that's kind of a weird pairing, but then you see what she's writing about. It's like, okay, now it makes sense. They are a perfect yeah. couple for each okay, other. Okay, because on the surface she seems so much more normal than him, but it's like actually they're both freaks. I mean, hey, the if you the people that are freaks together stay together, I guess. Yeah, no, I like them both a lot. So it's just kind of it just it it squares the circle there, you know. Yep. No, it, it's kind of sweet in a way. Actually, it's kind of sweet. But uh, yeah, I hope. Uh, honestly, dang they. It's uh, I kind of want to. I part of me is like I kind of wish I could get the inner workings of the relationship and like have like a sitcom thing, but it's like, uh, let's give them their privacy. They have enough issues going if on. If they write a biography in the in the future, that'd be kind of cool. Uh, if either of them writes a bi- autobiography in the future, that'd be cool. But until then, yeah, it's their it's their life, their whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, that brings us to the end of talking about this episode. But before we thank anyone uh, else, before we thank anyone else, you know, at the Yo Mama's podcast network slash at your dad's ass.com uh, slash thank, Ligma studios. Yeah. Let's thank our patrons who help uh, make this show possible. I'd like to thank Tim, Mia, Hanaro, Arthur, and um, anyone but me. I'd really like you to read this next name. I gotcha. I'll read it. Hey, Ram, let me tongue punch your fart box. That was legitimately in the patron name thing. I, I, you know, I don't know. I Wow. I'm not sure what's going on there, but beyond them, I'd like to thank Valtteri, Mickey, Alexander, Lucas, NB Dweeb. Uh, is that NBD Weeb or is it NB Dweeb? No big deal. Dwe- no big I know deal who weeb. it is, but I'm unclear how it's supposed to be pronounced. Uh, um, NBD, NBD Weeb. Let's just do NBD Weeb, and then if they have an issue with it, they can hit us up they will get back to us and just be like what are you fucking doing but also kenny and brandon let's go brand i was literally about to say let's go brandon (laughs) but anyways and let's go kenny i guess and all the other patrons let's go uh and that other guy that has honestly that's kind of funny that's the that's the second fart the username that's in a patreon that i that i have I thought you were going to say this the second Let's Go Brandon I've said today. And I was like, all right. <laughs> the first one was when I went to a rally. Anyway, no. Uh, but no, there actually is a guy in the in the Shiro, dis, in the Shiro Patreon. Hey, the, you're getting a bonus if you're listening to it somehow. Named Fart Daily. And I have to say his name every single week. And I think it's so weird. Like I say, thank you, Fart Daily, for donating $10 to us. He's so. actually also giving you really good life advice, which is you should fart daily. Yeah. Maybe too much. Uh, and now a word from our compatriots and benefactors. 
everybody. My name's Tegan Somerset. I'm Rocky Hardy. And I'm Brian Cartwright. And we are Impossible Coin, a podcast about video games. Join us every other week as we discuss gaming news. Did you know he tried to smuggle $100,000 across the Canadian border? Genre differences. Sometimes it's your turn to press the button, and sometimes it's your turn to block. And deep lore. I have spent so long on this, Brian, you can't do this to me. We will sell you nothing and solve none of your problems, but we sure are fun. Impossible Coin. A podcast about video games. See you on Thursdays. Thursdays. <laughs> I'm Lawson Leong. I'm Benel Jamosin. We're the new co-host of the Ballin' Out Super Podcast. And the old co-host of the Talking Naruto Podcast. Well, I wouldn't say that we're old exactly, Benel. We've been doing it for five years. Old enough. Uh, where have our lives gone? Watching Naruto films. All of them. And recapping them in full. And as we head to the end of Naruto Shippuden, we're starting the beginning of Dragon Ball. That's right, Benel. Now you and I are the hosts of the Ballin' Out Super Podcast, where we're recapping the best part of Dragon Ball. Original Dragon Ball. From the beginning. With special guests. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Talking Naruto Shippuden. And now, Falling Out Super... back and we have some news about Tagashi. Um, this is an article from comicbook.com and in the article it it goes like in speaking with his fans um, Yoshihiro Tagashi recently recommended the works of a horror author Yumeaki Hirayama in his latest work The Story of What I Did to the Pelicans in the Park. I'm only now reading that title, and I'm just like, all right, that seems not good. Continue. Listen, he was just a bit drunk. He just made him like the fish, you know, what people do. The question of why pelicans are in a park when they're uh, sea animals. but It actually is just the pelicans from Halo. Nice. And so the manga breaks down his love of the horror story and the author as such. It's like a nightmare that you experience while waking up. I'm referring to the works of Yumeake Hiroyama. Since the printed words are naturally visualized in my brain as if I'm watching a movie, I would say I experience novels visually even though the author is usually the most skilled at helping me visualize the scenes in the novel. There are some elements in this book that force me to visualize them, such as the eerie and peculiar characters, and the unexpected and crazy words that I would never have thought of my own. You should read this book, uh, the experience, its unique flavor um, that cannot be replaced. Um, while the horror author might be known for quite a few works, uh, perhaps his most well-known work is the movie Cursed. Um, the film, which arrived in Japan in 2004, focused on supernatural elements or e- events that take place in a convenience store and how the workers and the unfortunate patrons um, deal with them. On top of Yoshihiro's recommendation of Hirayama's work, the creators of Jujutsu Kaisen and Tokyo Ghoul 
also took the opportunity to recommend the creepy tale. And as many listeners might know, the author of Juj- the authors of Jujutsu Kaisen and Tokyo Ghoul are both big fans of Togashi. Well, at least we know now what we have to add to the uh, watch list for the show. For mm-hmm. sure. And like hearing the description, I'm just like, oh man, someone made a someone made horror version of Clerks. Hell yeah. Clerst. Clerst. Yeah, Clerst. Yeah, goddammit. it. To be honest, Yoshihiro kind of made it sound like a food versus like a uh, I mean like unique flavor, but it it sounds very interesting. I might have to read it myself now, even though I know I'm gonna get creeped out for like so that one's that one's the movie. Uh, okay. The the other thing is the one about the pelican, which I guess it's really weird that it didn't explain to us what the fuck yeah. that is. But yeah, interesting choice. Thirty seven. My Shinigami haunted thirty seven people in a row. <laughs> it's it's definitely one of those things. I feel like whenever you hear of like horror titles, the ones that actually creep me out the most are the ones that sound just very innocent, like. The story of what I did to Pelican of the Park. Like, take it in any other context, like, depending on who it's coming from or, like, what you know before someone says that, it could be something like, oh, like, an innocent kid, like, feeding fish to pelicans in a park or, I don't know, like, a creepy uh, Cosmo Horror Pelicans, like, story. So I, I'm interested to read it, too. It's making me get the lighthouse vibes. Yeah. yeah so th- there's one shot I actually want to do that. It, it kind of, it does seem a little bit of a weird shout out, but uh, my brother actually just did a video on indie horror movies. So it's, it's just really like, he just like, it's like crazy though. Cause he got like, he got like almost 20 K views, like just like in the last week. So it's kind of insane. Oh, nice. But, but you yeah. have him on as. A- <laughs> also, he's big in the horror stuff, so maybe he might That's he cool. might be interested in doing that. But yo, we should do a crossover with him. Legitimately, not not a way to get clout, but like, hey, that'd be cool to do a horror thing with him for Halloween or something. Yeah, that'd be kind of neat. Yeah, we could. I mean, he he. I actually just sh- told him to check out like Lane and then uh, some of the other psychological horrors like Perfect Blue and Paprika. So nice. hopefully, he checks those out. It'd be a good reason to watch. But yeah, I thought it was kind of funny this the whole horror thing with that. So I just thought I'd give him a shout. So. If you guys like uh, like horror stuff, indie movies, his name is Volta. He did a video called The Hidden Gems of Indie Horror Movies. I'll try to put in the copy if you guys want to check that out. It's a really good video. He's really insightful, and it's kind of weird seeing my younger brother do that. I don't know. To me, it's just kind of like, oh, really, it's really cool, though. So so I'm going to do a couple research pieces. This is mostly – well, this first one's mostly Wikipedia. The other one is like I can put together a bunch of different sources, and I'll kind of tell you more about that later. But I decided to do some posthumous research on a character. You're going to have to guess who it is, but it will be pretty obvious. Uh, it's some posthumous research on the character and some of the things around them um, and the influences, not really the character themselves. But first, I want to talk about a person named Masutatsu Oyama. Uh, Masutatsu Oyama, uh, who was born in July 27, 1923 and died in April 26, 1994, more commonly known as Masoyama was a karate master who founded Kyokushin Karate, considered the first and most influential style of full-contact karate. He was a Zionichi Korean, which meant he's a Korean person who lives in Japan. Uh, He spent most of his life living in Japan and acquired Japanese citizenship in 1968. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Very interesting politics in life, as you'll find out. But uh, Masayama was born uh, Choi Yong. Yui uh, in Kinte, Korea, 
At a young age, he was sent to Manchukuo, which is uh, now Manchuria, to live in his sister's farm, where he began to study Chinese martial arts for an old Chinese man who worked on the farm. While this sounds fairly rustic and they were poor in the global sense, they were still landowners and his dad was educated enough to be a noted composer of classical Chinese poetry. I'm unclear whether they mean actual like classical Chinese poetry, like he was writing purely in classical Chinese, or he was written, writing in a Japanese style of something resembling classical Chinese poetry called Kanbun, or if he was writing in the Korean equivalent, Gugyul. Yeah, for um, a second, when you when you said it sounds very fairly rustic, I thought you were going to say it sounds fairly cliche with every sort of with Chinese movie. Where it's like they grew up in a grew up in a farm, like learned Chinese. And you learned from arts old Chinese man. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like isn't this isn't like every fucking martial arts movie ever in existence? Well, except that he was in a colonized part of China during Japanese rule. <laughs> as a korean so like there's some fairly weird parts of this story too i mean there's oh, that's boy. gotta be a, a martial arts plot somewhere that, that's gotta be a thing probably but you could not market in any of those three countries that's why it's it's exclusively in america baby yeah in march 1938 oyama left for japan following his brother who enrolled in the imperial japanese army Jarmi, japanese Jarmi, the japanese army's yamanishi japanese jurati no, I mean, it's going to come in. Anyways, Japanese Army's Yamanishi Aviation School and changed his name to Oyama Masutatsu, where Masutatsu is a reading of the Hanja form of Beidal. Uh, in 1945, after the war ended... So keep in mind, this guy was in aviation school right before World War II. So just, I don't know. There's some weird shit already going on. But anyways, in 1945, after the war ended, Oyama left the aviation school and... Uh, and found a place to live in Tokyo where he met his future wife, Oyama Chiako, whose mother ran a dormitory for university students. This is my favorite part of Love Hina. Anyways. Uh, Dude, I need to watch Love Hina again. No, you don't. Anime. Yes, I do. <laughs> in 1946, Oyama enrolled in Waseda University School of Education to study sports science, and wanting the best instruction, he, con- he contacted the Shotokan Dojo operated by uh, Igo Funakoshi, the third son of karate master and Shotokan founder, Gichin Funakoshi and began his journey into karate. So is this any relation to like Ken and Ryu from Street Fighter, like the Shotokan karate? No, because as you're well aware, the Shotokan in Street Fighter is actually in Satsuken, and they just translated to Shotokan earlier because it was like a similar it was an easier cultural touchstone. Oh, okay. Um but Oyama later attended uh Takushoku University in Tokyo and was accepted as a student at the dojo of Gichin Funakoshi himself retrained for two years uh you're gonna see a lot of really famous names like the who's who of karate as like people he studied with um which is unsurprising given what he eventually went on to do so did he get Uh, to meet ip man um that would have been a little bit earlier so he would not have been that serious of a martial artist by the time that was happening what about a networker i fucking hate you Oyama then studied Goju Ryu karate for several years with Nechu So, who was a fellow Korean from Oyama's native province and the senior student of the system's founder, Chojin Miyagi. Chojin Miyagi is like the most, is one of the most famous old school karate guys, like old, old school, like 1800s. This was likely between 1946 and 1950 at Kanbukan, a dojo founded by high ranking students of Kanken Toyama, known for its large membership of Zainichi Koreans. You know, there, there's, uh, there's the, there's that low hanging joke there with Miyagi, so I'm just not gonna make it. No, that's too so easy. Mr. Miyagi is named after Chojin Miyagi. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. 
Yeah, like that. That yeah. So that I'm like, these are big enough names in karate that people who have not studied martial arts might actually know some of these names. Um. So around the time he also went around Tokyo, getting in fights with the U.S. military police. Uh. He, wow, what a badass! He was a cab way before. He was a cab because he was part. He was formerly part of the Japanese Air Force. So really, <laughs> take all of this with grains of salt. Um, he later reminisced those times in a television interview, quote-unquote, I lost many friends during the war. The very morning of their departure as kamikaze pilots, we had breakfast together, and in the evening their seats were empty. After the war ended, I was angry, so I fought as many U.S. military men as I could until my portrait was all over the police stations. Yikes, there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I, my my thing is I wonder when he refers to him as kamikaze pilots if he's a implying that it's those same kamikaze pilots oh yeah like he's saying like yeah my friends who i had breakfast with would before they would go and do their mission we would have breakfast together they would go blow up and then that morning the next you know at night we would just have dinner and their seat would be empty yikes i meant like the like the pearl harbor i don't know if he's like the pearl harbor kamikaze uh, pilots i don't think the timeline works well enough for that i think they were just kamikaze pilots generally oh, okay i feel you but anyways, to advance his martial arts and spiritual practice, and probably to avoid the cops who were like after him, Oyama retreated to a lone mountain for solace to train for three years on Mount uh, Minobu in Yamanishi Prefecture. God damn, this guy's like a badass. This, this is like the Rambo except good. Oyama built a shack on the side of the mountain. He was originally accompanied and then abandoned by a student. With only monthly visits from a friend in the town of Tatayama in Chiba uh, prefecture the loneliness and harsh training became grueling oyama remained on the mountain for 14 months as he was forced to leave the mountain retreat after his sponsor had stopped supporting him he returned to tokyo a much stronger and fiercer karateka in the past uh, i've said that both toguro and netero's mountain solitude probably both stem from masoyama and this is what i mean just going out training by yourself coming back kicking ass understandable um, maybe losing a bit of yourself too but anyways, like, like as in like if you had one shot, one chance, would you take it? <laughs> yeah, you know, he he had to come back down from the mountains because he ran out of money to afford mom's spaghetti. It was crazy. Understandable. Uh, so months later, after he had won the karate section of the Japanese National Martial Arts Championship, he was distraught that he had not reached his original goal to train in the mountains for three years. So the motherfucker went back into solitude again, this time on Mount Kiyosumi in Chiba Prefecture, where he trained for 18 months. Uh, Oyama greatly credited his reading of the Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi for changing his life completely. He recounts this book as being the only reading material during his mountain training years. And I'm basically wondering how much of this book is about gratitude, you know? A lot of it. I mean, each ring is gratitude. It's gratitude number one. It's thankfulness. That's why Ariana Grande actually got seven instead, so. What about Shang-Chi? How many does he have? Is it ten in that one? I don't even remember. I lost <laughs> ten. <count. laughs> so okay. he had double, so yeah, suck, suck it. Uh, suck it, Miyamoto Musashi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so in 1953, Oyama opened his own karate dojo named Oyama Dojo, teaching Goju Ryu. Oyama's own curriculum soon developed a reputation as tough, intense, hard-hitting, but practical style, which was finally named Kyoku Shinkai, which means the ultimate truth, in 1957. Along with practice fighting that distinguished Oyama's teaching style from other karate schools, emphasis on breaking objects such as boards, tiles, or bricks to measure one's offensive ability, 
uh, became Kyokushin's trademark. Oyama believed in the practical application of karate and declared that ignoring breaking practice is no more useful than a fruit tree that bears no fruit. As the reputation grew, students were attracted to come train there from inside and outside Japan, and the number of students grew. So, why am I talking about this guy? As I already brought up, he's you know probably an inspiration for Netero, but I want to talk about a little bit of like the origin of the school of uh, Netero's martial arts, Shingen Ryu, which, uh, depending on what it's written with, I think the kanji they show is it can mean style that originates from the heart. Um, and it's described as a school of Kenpo, which can mean karate or kung fu, but I'm going to go with karate given the depiction of like a very Japanese style school beforehand. But it's possible that the Gen is related to, this is kind of a far-fetched relationship, but I think there's three possible influences here. One of which is from a school of weapon martial arts called uh, Yagyu Shingen Ryu, which means the eye of the heart. Um, so Gan instead of Gen. Uh, and then there's another thing, which is, you know, uh, Masoyama's Kyokushin Karate, which again means, uh, you know, the ultimate truth. So that then there's also finally, this is the connecting piece. Togashi's a big video game guy. I think he may also know of Kyoku Genryu Karate from the King of Fighters and Art of Fighting series. Uh, which is the style practiced by Mr. Karate, Takuma Sakazaki, and Ryo, and all of them, that is based pretty directly on Kyokushin Ryu. I, I bet Togashi is one of the guys that did, the, did that multi-punch thing with the jank-ass hitboxes on everybody. Probably. God. But um, that's where I'll stop on that. Uh, I have a big thing here about Bodhisattva Guanyin, but does anyone have anything uh, to say about uh, Masoyama and his complicated legacy? Oh boy, um, if he was a real-life person today, well, if he existed today, I feel like he'd be a very contentious figure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what's interesting is there is a high overrepresentation as fraction of the population of Koreans in the Yakuza. Um, and this is not to besmirch Korean people so much as just like, hey, if you're an immigrant in a country that doesn't accept people, you're going to want to go with a group that will accept you. Um, but because of that, you often see more Koreans in things like bodyguarding, in things like uh, martial arts and the like. And this is kind of like part of a long history of the colonial and post-colonial politics of Korea and Japan. So there's a lot there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, another thing is interesting is we talked about it being similar to a movie, but I honestly think that like without him having really existed, anyone trying to make a movie based on his life would just be laughed off because people would just think it was unbelievable because it's an insane life. It's like, that's not, yeah. I mean, this seems like the, this seems like a guy that Steven Seagal and Frank ducks would claim that he fought under, but in oh, reality, never even yeah. met him. Yeah. And like, there's, there's crazy footage of this man, like killing bulls with his bare hand and shit. So like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Insane man. Anyways. Uh, so my next piece, uh, I did like a lot of, research this one's more thorough it's not just from one source about guanyin slash uh canon um so what do you guys know about uh guanyin slash canon zilch i don't think i know um canon seems familiar but maybe it's just i heard it in other media based off it so i would guess i don't really know anything so when you first said um i was like yeah well, that's the I first step it, in meditation it, actually isn't, isn't 
Oh, isn't there like a character in Naruto that has his knees can on? Uh, that sounds familiar. Um, let me see. I wonder if that's related or not. I guess you could say that it might be canon. Oh, are you thinking of Conan? I think I'm thinking of Conan. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Naruto actually does come up in this. So oh, along with perennial favorites like Journey to the West. Um. So anyways, uh, Guanyin slash Kanon is a bodhisattva associated with compassion. She is the East Asian representation of the older uh, Buddhist uh, figure, Buddhist bodhisattva, Avolokitesvara. Uh, Guanyin is short for Guanxian, which means the one who perceives the sound of the world. Some Buddhists believe that when one of their adherents depart from the world, they are placed by Guanyin in the heart of a lotus, and they are sent to the western pure land of Sukhavati. Uh, so, as you might notice, the lotus thing, very big in Guanyin's uh, imagery, and very big in Netero's. So, you know, obviously not a coincidence. Guanyin is often referred to as the most widely beloved Buddhist divinity. Several large temples in East Asia are dedicated to Guanyin, including the Shaolin Monastery, and Sensoji, the most visited religious site in the world, also known as Asakusa Kanan. Mm. I was surprised to find out it's the most visited religious site in the world. Uh, I have a feeling it's probably located in the middle of like an urban area, so it's easy to visit. I feel like we've been to that. How did we, Hannah, go to it? Asakusa? Yeah, we stayed there. You did you pass by that that uh, monastery? I guess. Yes, I think yes. so. Nice. Sounds right. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, aka the kind most often practiced in East Asia, a bodhisattva refers to anyone who has generated... Okay, I'm going to read a lot of Sanskrit words here, and um, I am not a practiced Sanskrit speaker, so let's see how this goes. Uh, bodhicitta, a spontaneous wish and compassionate mind to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. Think the ending of Madoka Magica. Um, so disappointing... Mahayana fuck you mahayana bodhisattvas are spiritually heroic persons that work to attain awakening and are driven by a great compassion um maha karuna these beings are exemplified by important spiritual qualities such as the four divine abodes brahma viharas or of loving kindness metta compassion karuna empathetic joy mudita and equanimity upekha uh, as well as the various bodhisattva perfections paramitas which include, oh, Jesus, uh, prajna paramita, transcendent knowledge or perfection of wisdom and skillful means, upaya. There's a lot of P's in that, in that last, in that word. Yeah, just, just a little. So I, I've recently been doing Pimsleur language learning for Tagalog and man, multisyllabic words are kicking my ass. Um, but in Buddhism, uh, Avalokitesvara, also known as Avalokitasvara, <laughs> is a bodhisattva who contains the compassion of all Buddhas and is the principal attendant of Amitabha Buddha, a.k.a. the Buddha, uh, on the right. He has 108 avatars, the most notable of which is uh, Padmapani, the lotus bearer. He is variously depicted, described, and portrayed as either male or female in different cultures. Dang, this guy. I wonder if James Cameron is in contact with this dude. Yeah constant in constant commune actually yeah he's, he's only got like two like james cameron's got two this guy's got 108 so it's like damn it's crazy 
the name Avalokitesvara combines the verbal prefix ava down lokita, a past participle of the verb lok, to notice, behold, or observe, here used in the active sense, and finally isvara, lord, ruler, or sovereign. In accordance with the santi, aka Sanskrit rules of sound combination, a isvara becomes esvara. Combined, the parts mean lord who gazes upon at the world. The word loka is absent from the name, but the name, but the phrase is implied. I don't know enough about Sanskrit to verify any of what I just said. I know Sanskrit, the font. Nice. No, sans serif, I think. Sorry. Okay, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know sans serif. If that, does that help in the situation or not? No. <laughs> so here's the first uh, mention of something you might know. Uh, the original name Avalokitesvara means one who looked down upon sound and is reflected in the historical use by Xuanzang, or the the monk in Journey to the West, in their original version of the name, which is Guanzizai instead of Guanyin. They can't keep getting away with this, this Journey of the West thing, just constantly. When the Chinese monk Fa Xian uh, traveled to Mathura in India in 400 CE, he wrote about monks presenting offerings to Avoko, Ava, Avalokitesvara, when Xuanzang traveled to India in the 7th century, he provided eyewitness accounts of Avalokitesvara uh, statues being venerated by devotees from all walks of life, from kings to monks to lay people. In China, Guanyin has been identified with, eight, with an 18-armed form of Avalokitesvara named Kundi. Kundi is usually depicted with multiple arms. The most common form has 18 arms, each wielding implements that symbolize Upaya. Her 18 arms also represent the 18 merits of attaining Buddhahood. The Lotus Sutra describes Avalokitesvara as a bodhisattva who can take the form of any type of god, including Indra or Brahma, any type of Buddha, any type of king, <laughs> basically anything is really what I'm getting at here, as well as any gender, male or female, adult or child, human or non-human, uh, in accordance of teaching the Dharma to sentient beings. Damn, couldn't he probably give some hella good hugs? Well, there's even there, uh, there's an even better hugger coming up recently uh, soon. Hell yeah! Uh, representations of the Bodhisattva in China prior to the Song Dynasty, nine sixty to twelve seventy nine, were masculine in appearance. Images with which later display attributes of both genders are believed to be in accordance with the Lotus Sutra, which describes that ability to be whatever. In China, the thousand armed manifestation. Notice we went from eighteen to a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> big jump i mean what what there's nothing important that happened between those areas so it's let's skip ahead a bit no not not time 18 arms to 1000 arms oh i thought it's, you said that was time it's like dang wow that's hella good hugs that's like that's like was that like 500 people hug yeah in china the thousand arm manifestations of guanyin is most popular among her different esoteric forms the karandavudya whoa fuck me i'm not saying that one wait where is it at can you highlight it Karundavyuha Sutra. Karatanvyunya Sutra. The thousand-armed and thousand-eyed Guanyin uh, is described as being superior to all gods and Buddhas of the Indian pantheon. The sutra also states that it is easier to count all the leaves of every tree of every forest and all the grains of sand in the universe than to count the blessings and power of Avalokitesvara. The version of Guanyin with a thousand arms depicting the power of all gods also shows various Buddhas in the crown depicting the wisdom of all Buddhas 
In temples and monasteries in China, iconographic depictions of the manifestation of the Guanyin is often combined with iconographic depictions of her 11-headed manifestations in formed statues with thousand arms as well as 11 heads. Dang, oh, wow. that's a lot of hugs and kisses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, how many XOs? <laughs> Gossip Girl XXXXOOXXXO. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one prominent story of its origin tells of Canon uh, vowing never to rest until he had freed all beings from samsara. Also, uh, after strenuous effort but struggling to comprehend the needs of so many who still had yet to be saved, his head split into 11 pieces. The Buddha Amida, uh, Amida seeing his plight, gives him 11 heads with which to hear the cries of the suffering. Upon hearing and comprehending those cries, Canon attempted to reach out to all those who needed his aid, but found that his two arms shattered into pieces. Once more, Amida comes to his aid and grants him a thousand arms with which to aid all suffering. Wait, so he aids in the suffering? No, he aids the the suffering people. Oh, I thought the way you said I thought you said aids the aids and I thought you meant aids and the suffering. It's like, dang, that's a lot of that's a lot of punches. Jesus, yeah, it's a uh, Asura's wrath type shit. Asura's dead arms. Anyways, uh, so back to why this is important. Uh, so a little bit of Journey to the West. So kind of pop culture thing here, but the second part of Journey of the West introduces, fuck you, Tang Sang Zhang, whose early biography and the background of the Great Journey, dismayed that the land of the South, i.e. Tang China, knows only greed, hedonism, and promiscuity and sins. The Buddha, actually, yeah, this is the Buddha saying this, you know, like Tang China only knows uh, greed, hedonism, promiscuity and sins, eat hot chip and, and sin. Dang. Uh, <laughs> The Buddha instructs the Bodhisattva Avalokitesvara. What, what, what would it be? Be bisexual? What would that be? Be multi-armed. It, honestly, given the sexual mores of the time, it would probably still just be be bisexual. Be bisexual. Be be uh be uh be hot chip. Be hot chip. Uh, there we go. To search China for someone to take the Buddhist sutras to uh, of transcendence and persuasion for goodwill back. Uh, in Japan, numerous historical figures are considered emanations of canon, including Prince Shok uh, Shotoku Taishi, uh, Japan's first great patron of Buddhism, Dharma, the founder of Zen Buddhism, and the likely mythologized founder of the Chan slash Zen Buddhism schools and Shaolin martial arts, and Chujo Hime, a Buddhist nun regarded as one of Japan's greatest early embroidery artists. Two Tibetans, the current Dalai Lama, is an incarnation of canon, so watch your tongue. Oh, God damn it. Oh, boy. That was oh, bad. God. That was bad, dude. I was Come waiting on. to fucking say it this whole time. I knew you were going to make that joke. Oh, God. Oh, boy. This, this whole research piece was just a setup for that. Anyways, the powerful protector deity, Bishamonten, uh, the lord of the north, one of the four heavenly kings, and one of Japan's seven lucky gods is also considered a manifestation of canon. Speaking of Bishamonten, <laughs> in Japan, Bishamonten, or just Bishamon, is thought of as an armor-clad god of war or warriors and a punisher of evildoers. Bishamon is portrayed holding a spear in one hand and a small pagoda in the other hand, the latter symbolizing the divine treasure house whose contents he both guards and gives away. In Japanese folklore, he is the one of the seven lucky gods. In the next volume of manga, which we haven't gotten to yet, Netero is posthumously shown in Bishamonten's pose in front of Guan Yin. Damn. So, I, yeah, check this out. I just wanted to show, like, this is a common pose for Bishamonten to be in, and he's right in front of the god that he's apparently an avatar of. 
That's fair. That's fair. But you know, I'm I'm excited for the next God of War. It's gonna be uh, taking place fighting Japanese gods and Chinese gods. I like it. Indian Chinese. Indian Fusion Chinese. A, a, I think Asian gods. That this. Yeah, that I'd, say, yeah right? I'd say Asian gods is yeah. That's probably more accurate. Um, it it is interesting to think how much East Asia's re- like religious background is from South Asia, and similarly, how much like Europe's major religious forces are from the middle east I, I the importation thing is interesting to me and it's something that occurred to me while i was reading this um anyways more canon and pop culture uh i am personally of the belief that the way that canon is depicted in hunter hunter is resultant from togashi being a fan of mobile suit gundam and i've previously written this up in twitter but I have a couple reasons to believe this. Uh, one of which is that the way that Kanon is referred to in Hunter x Hunter is Hyakushiki Kanon, which means a hundred form or a hundred type Kanon. There is only one major thing that I can think of that is called a hundred type, and it is also a giant golden humanoid form. And that is the Hyakushiki, which is the mobile suit piloted by a character in Zeta Gundam, uh, namely Quattro Bajina, uh, who... It it recently yeah that that name it's a it's a name. <laughs> I mean I, the thing is that I don't know who he is. Like I, I saw the character is like, is that just like a new character they put in the show or something? Yep. Who who knows who this guy is? What's interesting is uh it turns out he is so he's based on the legal name of a French pop singer from back in the day whose uh, artist name was Charles Aznavour. Which I don't know why that sounds. It's an interesting name, but uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like Char Azumana from Gundam, but I don't think that can be. He died in the first one, so yeah, yeah, Char Aznable, if you will. But let me let me look up what this guy's original legal name was, uh, because it's uh, it's interesting. Charles Aznable. Charles Martinet, Mario voice. No, his original name. Uh, he was born uh, Shanur. Vaginage as Navurian. Oh, so, wow. I, you know, weird that these guys have a lot of char, a lot of vagine. How the are vagoon. these related? Weird, weird. But, anyways, um, so Canon is normally portrayed with either 1,000 arms or 18, never 100. So, I'm firm in my belief that, you know, this 100 type name, Hyakushiki, in both cases. Isn't Canon is like a, isn't Gundam just like sort of a type? I forgot the name of it. They're like, uh, like their powers or something type? Uh, I don't. I don't know what you're referring to. Well, didn't the gun the Gundam pilots have like a special power or something like that? Oh, new type power. New type. Yeah. That's it. That's what I was looking for. So I actually think that's kind of related too because I bring up um, a little bit of Gundam spoilers, but both both the Hyakushiki cannon and Hyakushiki are giant golden constructs piloted by incredibly proud blondes who represent the discovery of a new type of knowledge or ability who seek to spread it to the rest of the world, but who in their quest to advance the human race face a dangerous new emerging threat powered by the revolutionary forces they codified and brought into play. You also fight on horses. Yeah, but for real, I I, I earnestly think this is a Gundam reference. I have a lot more here, but I'm going to fucking skip it because we've, we're running long. Uh, it's just about how Naruto did something similar, but not so much based on Hunter x Hunter, so much as based on the actual original Senju Kanon. Um... They, they base it on the thousand arm form uh, and 
no matter what anyone thinks about them having done it beforehand, that's only because they saw Hunter Hunter and Naruto out of order. Because if they read the comics, it's clear that Hunter Hunter did this gimmick first. But again, I think it's more just both of them referring to, you know, uh, Senju Kanon. Anyways, yeah, that's uh, that's what I had to say. Uh, I guess how much of that was convincing slash how much of it do you feel is relevant? I think a lot of it is. I mean, but what do you guys think? I think so. I mean, if it's not even like a direct like inspiration for for Tagashi, which the only way I feel like could firm is like actually asking him and him answering. I do think at least it gives like a more like context in, you know, like the possible inspirations. If anything, it's just interesting to learn. Yeah, I think the canon one is like 100%. This is what he was going for, like portraying Netero in the same pose as like Bishamonten. Um, the one I think is more up in the air is the Gundam one. I'm personally of the opinion, but yeah. But yeah, I think the Bishamonten one is 100%. Yeah, I do think it's just interesting overall because I know, Joe, you kind of pointed out just like the, ins- the a lot of like the background of like East Asian religions, specifically like buddhism comes from like south asia because i think i remember when i was young and i was a very sheltered catholic kid and i first saw i think it was a chinese um like musical performance and it showed like the bodhisattva if if i'm pronouncing it correctly and i just thought like wow that looks something i would associate with india but this is clearly chinese like what's going on here (laughs) Now it all makes sense. (laughs) I think it's even more complicated by the fact that a lot of early Buddhist iconography was actually generated in Bactria, which is now part of Afghanistan, but it was generated by people who were ethnically Greek because the way that Buddhism got to China was actually not the route people would think where it would go through Southeast Asia. It actually went Northwest first and then circled back around through Central Asia and into China. And so at that time, the Alexandrian dynasty, you know, after Alexander the Great, had deposited a bunch of Greeks in Central Afghanistan, and they were some of the first converts to Buddhism um, outside of India. And so because of that, they incorporated a lot of Greek-style iconography, like Greek of the time, not like later Greek. And because of that, if you look at very early Buddhist statues and like contemporary Greek statues, there's actually a lot of overlap. So it's even like Buddhism has been like an incredibly global religion since like its inception. It's crazy. Wow, religion is super interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, no, it's it's one of those things that's like it's really interesting to think about because it, it kind of came up through Iran as well. And so there was like, oh, uh, actually, you know how like right before 9-11, uh, I'm taking it back to the thing we always talking about, but the Taliban uh, destroyed a bunch of giant Buddhist statues in a valley in Afghanistan right before doing 9-11. And because they saw them as, you know, heretical, but they're there because Afghanistan was one of the earliest Buddhist kingdoms. Yeah, but ap- apparently there's some religious like, oh, well, that's fake. Our religion is the only true one. So let's just destroy it and, you know, forget about it. Yeah, it's 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 tragic because it's not like I think oftentimes people are like, oh, yeah. And this shows like, you know, why like the inferiority of, of Arab culture or whatever, which is one a super racist statement, but two also not even applicable because like the people who live in Afghanistan are literally not Arabs. 
because yeah, it's it's and they're not realizing that these aren't like these are just like aren't religious figures that are destroying it. It's like people that are radicalized to a point where it's like unhealthy. So yeah, things. and and what's crazy is, is like one of the weirdest things is like it is Afghan people erasing their erasing the achievements of their ancestors, and so it's not like a foreign imposition so much as just like there is something more and broader and more complicated and terrible going on than like something that can be summarized as easily as like, Oh, look at what religion or look at what ethnic group does. Yeah. And you not know? to get too deep into it. And it's like a lot of it's like some, it's not even their choice. It's like, Oh wait, well you can worship this or we can just straight up kill you. So destroy those statues, please. Yeah, no, there's, yeah. So that just kind of brings us back to the earlier parts of just the horribleness of the human history. But yeah, that's, uh, that's what I got for, uh, research topic i hope you guys enjoyed uh both you guys uh my fellow hosts and also uh listeners actually it was super fascinating and really honestly i've always had an interest in dabbling in buddhism and looking into that so that's kind of like might be a good jumping off point for maybe me to look more into that because i was always found it super fascinating in a way and i think it was a religion i always wanted to check out so i think maybe this might be the thing i want to check out with that definitely a fascinating religion it's also a lot more varied than i think it often gets depicted in the west uh there's like i was gonna say there's like four main schools but like debatably there's two debatably there's three um but like it all kind of mixes together and it's a really complicated stew and it's it's often a lot more based in gods and mysticism than i think it's often depicted as in the west where it's seen as like a philosophy which is like not historically true um, and, you know, obviously every religion has a philosophical aspect to it, and there is a high philosophical level of content to it. So if you're looking at it in, say, relation to, like, ancient Christianity or Judaism, it is more philosophical, but, like, people often therefore think that it is atheistic when that's not necessarily true. No, for sure. I mean, and all religions in, in their own way, like you were saying, has their own, has their own, like, and it could be taken like, oh, you could be Christian, just be like finally fasting, and that it would be like completely throw your your lifestyle and making that the way that you live. So it's kind of interesting that that there's multiple ways of looking at it from that lens, where it's like it could just be like, oh, it's an interesting religion way of like worshiping, like express yourself versus, oh, this is now your lifestyle now. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um. I just realized I I kind of glossed over one of the most important reasons I did that research piece. I wanted to understand why Netero's avatar was like a goddess of compassion. And it became clear that because one of her avatars is Bishamonten, who is this like fierce warrior, like that is what they were going for. That like Netero was both and that he was trying to ensure a compassionate future for the human race, but at the, through the vehicle of war and whether or not we judge him for that. And it's the duality that is being expressed through the statement that was on the manga page that was like a tremendously terrifying, like like a I think it was like a a horrifying and ferocious roar from the most compassionate goddess. And uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, anyone want to take us out? Yeah, I can. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Spirit Hunters. Please hit us up with questions, requests, or just to chat at our Facebook or Twitter at Spirit Hunter Pod. Heads up, 
check us out at patreon.com slash spirithunterpod and join our now public discord where we will be discussing the shit of all Hunter, you, and more. Um, speaking of Discord, if you want to support us another way, you can help us by giving us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Each review gets a surface to tens or hundreds more people. Um, finally, today's intro and outro themes were made by Michael Shingo Crawford and Maddie M, respectively. Please check them out on YouTube. Also, big shout out to our editor, Tommy. Thanks to him, the rest of the crew can focus on doing um, research and talking all things Tagashi. See you on the other side. Later. Later.